everybody, welcome back to a Thousand Names for God, episode 9. My name is Rick Alexander and I am the host of this podcast. Also, if you are getting anything out of this show, it would mean the world to me if you would share it with people that you think might enjoy it or it might be helpful to or even to head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. You guys have been hearing me talk about my men's course. I have cohort two coming up. The first cohort was awesome. I mean, it's the first time I've ever taken mythology and used it to explain masculine psychology in a group of people. I've taught it to one-on-one clients. It's been really helpful in my own life. And so I'm going to do a second cohort of that coming up here in October. October 5th is actually when we kick off. If you are a man that's interested in really wrestling with what does it mean to be a healthy, embodied, masculine presence in the world today, uh, head to the link in the show notes of this episode, or you can just go to rickalexander.com and you can apply for cohort number two. If you're not a man, but you want to send this to somebody that you think this could be really helpful for, that could benefit from an environment like this, then uh, please feel free to send it along. So today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I wrote an essay called If Boys Never Die, Men Never Live. And it's an essay exploring the necessity of evolution within masculine psychology. But I want to say a couple of things because I know that my listeners are not, uh, of course, not all men. And, And most of the time I don't make episodes that are developed specifically for masculine psychology. But in this episode, I'm taking an archetypal view of masculine psychology and talking about the development of psychology in general. And so a lot of these symptoms that I'm going to talk about, you'll be able to tell how they show up, like, oh, I've seen that or I've never seen that one before. But I just want to say that this is true for men. So it's helpful for women to see how men develop and what they're struggling with. And then I would also say that the archetypal spectrum doesn't care too much about what sex you are. And so some of these things actually are going to apply to women as well. Uh, But of course, I wrote the essay with men in mind because it's what I am. Oh, and I also want to point out that if you want the written version of this essay for whatever reason, you can find it at rickalexander.com. So the goal of this essay is to highlight the expectations and nature of a man's life if he does not undergo the development and transition into a more mature psychological structure. Often we feel elements of dis-ease in our life but have trouble pinpointing their origin and so suffer from a sort of low-resolution ache that appears incurable. When this is the case, the common remedy put forth is to further numb our feeling function through neurological manipulation i.e. we take drugs that make us feel better. And while all modes of treatment have their place in maintaining psychological hygiene, a holistic approach will seek to go beyond the presenting symptom and find its root. What follows is a list of common symptoms and their probable roots. In light of the fact that there are few cultural incentives to undergo this transformation from the consciousness of a boy to the mature consciousness of a man, the modern man is particularly susceptible to moving into later life without ever having felt the pain innate with the death of their egoic consciousness. If a man finds himself in a position of leadership, familial, professional, or otherwise, and he still possesses the basic psychological structure innate in boyhood, he'll continuously find that in order to feel in control over his own dominion, he'll be forced to oscillate wildly between chaos and tyranny. 
By way of metaphor, the evolution of masculine psychology can be understood as moving from that of a prince to the archetype of the good king. A prince who never learned to identify and meet his own needs will not be able to meet the needs of the kingdom simply because he wears a new crown and assumes a new seat at the table. Experientially, this leader will find himself experiencing bouts of feeling on top, even unstoppable and godlike, separated by periods of immense frustration and growing isolation. The pulls he experiences will be the result of malformed maturity. The tyrant is always a closeted weakling. His lack of autonomy born from a lack of strength of character will render him impotent to fully organize his own internal world. His external affairs will follow suit, consumed in the chaos he cannot seem to get a grip on. It is a hallmark of fully developed masculine psychology to be capable of acting as the ordering principle. To make up for the weakness, he'll leverage excessive force, hence the bent toward tyranny. This force will be aimed at both himself and others who he hopes to control or destroy. He'll spend his life entrenched in an inner war, fighting himself to get done what he wants or needs to. Because all force creates an opponent process, he will find that he is always torn between opposing forces, and internal peace will be impossible to maintain for any extended period of time. When the psychology structure matures, he finds the opposition in the world around him, and even the opposing parts within him become allies in his quest toward wholeness. It's as if his internal and external world all begin marching in the same direction. If he gets into a position of considerable power in this state, he'll constantly try to vanquish what he deems as the other in the world, unconsciously hoping that it will allow him to tame the other in himself. The other, in himself, psychologically speaking, is anything in himself that he finds utterly unacceptable and is unwilling to face. Character defects will be swept under the rug or hidden behind his persona. Others will see them, often quite easily, but he will not. The boy who grows old must remain in willing ignorance in order to preserve his own picture of himself. What he does not face in himself, he will find over and over again in the world. In this case, rather than fulfill the purpose of his life as a unique individual and accomplish on earth what only he is uniquely positioned to do, his life story will amount to chasing ghosts and boxing with his shadow. Author John Eldridge, in his book Wild at Heart, asserts that deep in his heart every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. If said man has not undergone the death of his boyhood worldview, the various battles he fights will be fruitless and meaningless. Rather than fighting on behalf of the oppressed and the disenfranchised, he'll create them, contributing to the catastrophe of the world rather than its healing. He'll always be in pursuit of a new beauty as he is unable to sustain intimacy for any length of time. The boy who never becomes a man will have plenty of adventure, and that will be the appeal to staying the same. The possibility of what and who could be next will always beckon him to leave the monotony of the real world. If, however, he takes a step back to notice the quality of his adventures, he'll notice that they all seem very similar. The nature of the adventure will not change because that would require that he changes. He'll feel after a while that he is living in a very cyclic way, unable to find the depth in life that he secretly longs for in his soul. The life of becoming and incarnating that he might have with Wendy will be continuously traded for the high-flying fantasies with Tinkerbell. It's common for a father to guide his son by reminding him when his eyes get too big for his appetite. 
the father in this case acts as a grounding principle until the boy can internalize that grounding and learns to balance his capability and his enthusiasm. If, however, the boy does not go through the pain of sacrificing his endless potential for the commitment of his finite and limited everyday life, he'll find that his foundation will not be strong enough to hold the house that he desires to build in his dreams. As he recognizes the mismatch between what he can dream up and what he can actually incarnate, rather than accept the disparity and get on with the noble task of building his life despite its parameters, setbacks, and limitations, he'll retreat more and more into the fantasy in his mind. Every time the fantasy has an opportunity to touch down in real life, he won't be able to stand it. He won't know why, but every encounter that threatens to get too real or to tie him down will trigger a flight response. If he commits to his real life, he is simultaneously committing to his real death. The two are merely different sides of the same coin. One implies the other. The commitment will forfeit him the opportunity to spend his life sailing atop the clouds with the gods and all other beings that are free from the pain and limitations of an incarnated life. But what he does not know is that by not committing to his death, he has set himself on a course to experience one of life's only true tragedies, to have come all the way here to earth without ever having really lived. His inability to stay with the real will destine him to live what is called the provisional life. That is the feeling that one gets when they go through the motions, perhaps even check all the boxes that make them admired by others, and yet can't seem to shake the feeling that their life is passing them by. They see it going on in front of them, but cannot seem to grasp it or to taste its marrow. The ancients understood the need to place boys in the heat of initiation where elders could guide them into the death of who they thought they were and into who their life and community need them to be. They understood that an uninitiated boy allowed to masquerade and assume the roles of a man would threaten the stability of the entire village. The initiations functioned as a liminal space, liminal from the Latin limen, meaning threshold. As they cross through the sacred rite, the part of them that remained will have been purified by the heat of the passage. It's facing the heat of a man's life that allows him to properly temper his soul and make him characterologically fit to care for other beings in a benevolent way. The necessary ego death puts a man in touch with what is essential about him by stripping him of his exterior identification and sacrificing his earliest patterns of behavior. Only when a man relinquishes these patterns and bows to the guidance of that which is greater than himself can he begin to understand what he is doing here and why. The confusion and anxiety most commonly associated with modernity are caused by a separation from the essence or that which is essential about us. That is to say, we suffer from our lack of connection to the soul. Disconnected, we'll chase everything but feel the fulfillment of nothing. In a world where boys have been allowed to grow old without ever having transformed into men, the blame will be everywhere, but suspiciously, fault will be nowhere. The lack of ownership will make reconciliation between warring factions impossible, so conflict will be endless. Oppression will only grow more widespread because the strength and courage to stand up against tyranny will not have been developed. The disenfranchised among us will only grow in number, as those with the means to do something about it will be too selfish and too self-indulgent to care. Playfulness will be slowly siphoned out of culture because hiding within the boy who refuses to grow up is an increasingly harsh man. His cold, hard, and at times callous attitude will surface every time life demands he participate in reality. 
Over time, this part of his personality structure will grow and grow until the resentment of an unlived life consumes the lion's share of his thoughts. He won't frame it like this in his dialogue, though. Instead, everyone else will always be the problem that thwarts his happiness. It's a common mythic motif that when the king is sick, the entire kingdom suffers. If a man grows up unable to actualize his own potential, time will only take him further from himself. The result will be that he develops a sort of unquenchable homesickness that starts as a dull ache, but that enough time will turn into an existential agony. All along, the medicine he needs will be on the other side of the psychological death that he refuses to undergo. Doing so would require that he face the fact that life is a letdown in comparison to his fantasies. Not ultimately, but certainly in the short term. He'll have to grieve the fact that his highest hopes have never been manifested. The trade-off is that he gets to participate in the ongoing work of creation, which holds a future more meaningful than any fantasy the mind can conjure up. To get there, however, he'll have to come to grips with his own pain points, inadequacies, and vulnerabilities, no longer content to sweep them into the shadows. Until he comes to grip with his own suffering, he will be a liability to inflict suffering on others, which he will do both consciously and unconsciously, depending on his temperament. Only when a man owns his own faults, seeing them in the light of day, will he suffer enough to learn how to love properly. Only when he learns how to love properly will he become the kind of servant leader that his destiny and the betterment of his world needs him to be.